You're listening to the Fertility Academy podcast, episode 31. Today, I have Dr. Jody Peacock back on the podcast to talk about preconception planning, so stay tuned. Welcome to Fertility Academy, a podcast where we provide you with information and tools to help you optimize your fertility to grow your family no matter where you are in your fertility journey. We offer interesting, creative, and evidence-based information and give you practical tools to help you get closer to your goal of building a family. I'm your host, Michelle Kapler. I'm a fertility-focused acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner, board-certified fertility specialist and fertility coach with over 10 years of experience helping my patients build their families. I'm so glad you're here with us. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome. I'm so glad you're here with us today. On this episode, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Jody Peacock about preconception planning, that is getting your body ready to conceive before you start actually trying. I personally use preconception planning for conceiving my own kids. In my 20s, I lost my right fallopian tube due to an unplanned ectopic pregnancy. This meant that I was working with only one functional side. So before I started trying to conceive, I did a three-month preconception plan for both of those pregnancies. My programs involve nutritional changes, acupuncture, and Chinese herbs. For me, it worked really well. Of course, there's never any way of knowing if the preconception work that I did had any effect on my own personal outcome, but it was really about knowing at the end of the day that I did everything that I could to set myself up for success. And by the way, my husband did the preconception program too. The sperm is 50% of the genetic equation when it comes to making a baby, so the partner with sperm is very much worth including in the preconception planning phase. Dr. Judy and I are going to touch on that in today's episode. So in today's episode, Dr. Jody and I are going to talk about what is preconception, what aspects of health you need to consider, what to eat and how to exercise, what blood work might be a good consideration, how to choose a good prenatal vitamin, and how to approach preconception for male fertility. So before I play the interview, here's Dr. Jody's professional bio. Dr. Jody Peacock is a naturopathic doctor, author, and public educator. Jody is passionate about educating couples on the role of the environment and lifestyle to optimize their fertility and health for their future children. She authored Preconceived, a book to support as many couples as possible through a wealth of research on the impact of diet and lifestyle changes with regards to conception. Preconception health is critical to ensuring the optimal health of our future generation. She feels very strongly about the opportunity to educate patients and the general public in the use of effective alternative treatments, empowering them to take control of their own health. This is one of the reasons why she started the Canadian Fertility Show to educate the public. Jody is also the Chief Medical Officer of Enhanced Fertility, and she's a proud mom of three boys, Maddox and twins, Cooper and Carter. So without further delay, let's play my interview with Dr. Jody Peacock. All right, Dr. Jody Peacock, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate it. So we're going to talk all about preconception planning today. I've already read your bio and the introduction but that, that is relevant to our subject matter today. And uh, I've definitely read your bio in other, the other episode that we did as well. But just tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe your work with preconception. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a practicing naturopathic doctor. I've been in practice since uh, 2007. And I think the, I mean, the big thing that kind of started me on this journey to supporting um, patients, you know, through fertility and, um, and pregnancy was just my own personal story. I think a lot of 
you know, physicians and doctors come to it from that kind of place of personal. So I was diagnosed with PCOS um, in my early 20s, also have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So both of those conditions, as we know, can, can impact our fertility. And I think what really kind of got me interested in focusing in this preconception time was, you know, the comments that I would receive from different physicians in the medical field, like, oh, don't wait to have kids, you know, with these diagnoses, it's going to be very difficult. And, and there wasn't really a lot of options or any guidance whatsoever around, okay, well, what can I actually do to preserve my fertility? Because I'm 20, and I don't want to have kids yet. I mean, I think I want to eventually, but but I'm not there. So what can I do? And so I you know I was in, you know, the beginning of my naturopathic medical school training. So from there, I kind of was like, okay, I can really focus on how do we optimize hormonal health? How do we reduce our toxicity load? You know, what things can we put in place to protect and preserve our fertility through the long run? And then I think kind of where it really sealed the deal for me around that preconception time is you know, the stats that we're now seeing that this generation of children being born are the first in human history that aren't expected to have a longer life expectancy than their parents. And so I think, you know, again, as a naturopath who is somebody who's supposed to be focused in preventative healthcare, that just struck such a nerve with me. Because I'm like, if our kids are not as healthy as we are, like, that's a problem. And where can we kind of start and where can we have impact on changing that trajectory? And I think this is where kind of looking at that time before you get pregnant, optimizing health of both partners, so we can optimize sperm, we can optimize egg, we should, you know, hopefully be able to have a healthier embryo and a healthier baby, right? And that's going to lead to healthier kids and and hopefully starting to change that narrative. Perfect. I love this conversation. I think it's one that people don't have often enough. And it's kind of up there with, why don't we teach women about how their cycles work when they're first starting to have cycles? You know, why don't we teach our you know, our our boys and our men, how much of an impact their sperm health can be kind of this window into their overall health. Why don't we have those conversations with young people? You know, why don't we start people even earlier? Because this is one of these basic life functions that's ultimately a reflection of our overall health. And so, you know, I just, I just wonder why we don't talk about this more. So I'm glad we're talking about it today. Um, so preconception planning, can you tell us a little bit about what that is exactly? Yeah, so I mean, basically, we're looking fairly specifically at the window kind of three to six months leading up to a pregnancy. So kind of minimum of three months, because we know from, you know, when a sperm basically first starts to develop until it ejaculates from the body, we're looking at about a three month or 100 day window. Um, from a female perspective, I mean, we're born with all our primordial follicles, so basically all the eggs that we're going to have. But from when that primordial follicle kind of starts to develop and until it ovulates, it's also about a three month time frame. So this is where I think that kind of three months and obviously if you can extend it a little bit longer <laughs> into that six month period, we can start to really see some positive changes in kind of the health of sperm and egg. But also I think it's a time where, you know, it's in p- parents to be, you know, start thinking about the health of their kids and, you know, what can I do to impact that? So I think it's just a very natural time to, you know, start to eat better. Maybe you start exercising, 
start looking at stress reduction, like these kind of things. And obviously, if we can do these throughout our adult lives, it's going to put us in a much better position going into that kind of preconception time. But I do think we can see some pretty significant changes in that, you know, shorter window that can, you know, again, improve our chances of conception, improve our, you know, chances of carrying to term and having a healthy baby, which is obviously the goal of most parents to be. Of course. Okay, thanks for that. So three months is kind of the magic number that we're looking at. And Further to that question, I'm wondering, you know, yourself, you're a really good example of somebody who was actually diagnosed with a condition that could potentially affect future fertility. And your doctors were saying, you know, don't wait, get pregnant sooner than later. But if some of our listeners are kind of in that same boat of, well, I've been diagnosed with PCOS, for example, in my teens or early 20s, and you're not looking at, you're not even close to wanting to have a baby, is there a bigger window that you suggest for people who actually have diagnosed conditions? So if somebody had PCOS, for example, would you suggest doing longer than three months or is three months kind of sufficient for looking at that? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously from my perspective as a naturopath, we're going to treat some of those types of conditions a little bit differently than your mainstream medical professional might. So for example, you know, getting the diagnosis of PCOS in your teens generally the treatment that's offered is oral contraception, right? So basically, I mean, oral contraception is essentially a Band-Aid, right? Like it's like, okay, we can slap this on and you'll have a monthly menstrual cycle. But when you stop taking the birth control, what happens, right? It's not like it magically gets rid of the PCOS or resets your hormonal system. And I think that's an important conversation to have with patients as early as, you know, I get in touch with them, basically, right? So there are lots of ways that you can manage PCOS and keep your menstrual cycle healthy without needing exogenous hormones. Um, So for those patients, I mean, basically, as soon as you're seeing you don't have a menstrual cycle, your menstrual cycle is super irregular, then I would encourage those women to reach out to an acupuncturist, to a naturopath so that we can start, you know, getting at the underlying cause so that we can obviously optimize your fertility, but it's also going to optimize all those symptoms and your overall health as well. So yes, I mean, if you've been diagnosed with, you know, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, any autoimmune conditions, anything that's inflammatory, the sooner you start to look at how do we get at the root cause of that and address that, the better it's going to be for your overall health and your future fertility. Okay, perfect. So the sooner the better is what I'm hearing here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. And then just to circle back to an earlier little piece of that conversation, which was being on oral contraception. I know that oral contraceptives are very, very big in our culture right now. A lot of women are taking them. It's just kind of been part of our culture, you know, it's kind of the saying that either you're on the pill or you're pregnant is kind of how it's put to to our teen girls, for better, for worse. And so if somebody's been on the pill for quite some time, or even just a short amount of time, a lot of the time that they'll go to their doctor and they say, okay, well, I've been on the pill for this long. How long should I give myself until I want to try to get pregnant before I come off the pill? Um, and the doctor will usually say, well, just go off the month before you want to get pregnant. Um, and I did have a more nuanced conversation uh, about this in another episode. So that's always there if somebody really wants to dig deep with the pill. Um, but how long do you suggest that people actually spend off the birth control pill before they try to conceive? 
Well, I would say that is quite a loaded question for sure. So I'm glad you have another episode that addresses that piece. I mean, part of it will depend on what the reason is somebody went on oral contraceptions to begin with. Right. So if if they were, you know, it was recommended because they had a lot of hormonal imbalances, because they have PCOS, because they have endometriosis, um, you know, any of these kind of reasons are going to impact your fertility. So, you know, just coming off a month before and trying to get pregnant may not work out for that particular pit. Right. Like we'll have some patients, though, that they stop oral contraceptives the next month, their cycle is bang on 28 days, they're ovulating, and they're good to go, right? So I, I think it's just a bit naive to think, okay, just because I've stopped the birth control pill the next month, I'm going to get pregnant, right? Like, even with everything working perfectly, you have about a 25% chance of conceiving each month. And that's assuming, you know, you're ovulating, you have a good uterine lining, there's no, you know, other hormonal imbalances, there's no toxicity, sperm health is good, right? There's a lot, like the more that you learn about fertility, the more I think, I don't know how anybody gets pregnant ever with all of these, you know, working parts. Um, so yes, I mean, sometimes does that work that somebody comes off the pill and they get pregnant the next month? Absolutely, it can. Um, but typically, you know, it will depend what the underlying reason was for it, sometimes also how long someone has been on it. But even that, you know, some women I'll have, they've only been on it for 18 months, and they come off and it takes six months to get their cycle back, where another patient has been on it for 12 years, and their cycle comes right back. Right. Yeah. It's one of those answers that we as natural health practitioners often give where we're like, well, it depends. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have anything concrete to tell you. It just depends on your individual body and your history and and the way that things, you know, behave and play out. And there's also kind of that X factor that, you know, there's a part of science that can't tell us a lot about what fertility is and how it works. You know, we do, it's the reason why we don't understand how one person might get pregnant and another person with the exact same set of circumstances might not get pregnant easily. Absolutely. So, I mean, I would say if you can give at least kind of three months to kind of help get that, you know, hormones processed out, see a couple of healthy menstrual cycles, you know, just have a good baseline. I think that's pretty reasonable. If you happen to get pregnant during that time, fine. Like we obviously are happy and we move forward with that. But um, yeah, I would say if you can at least give yourself some, some section of time. Now that will be different though, in like cases where somebody has severe endometriosis, a lot of times, like if they've had to do surgery, and then maybe they've been, you know, offered oral contraceptives. In those cases, sometimes it's actually better not to wait because the longer you wait, the more that endometrial tissue might get triggered again. So there are kind of certain individual cases where we might actually say it's better to get pregnant right away after, you know, a surgery or after coming off, but they're few and far between, I would say, typically. Okay, that's good to know. And so, you know, it always comes up back to that message, when in doubt, always consult with your health practitioner, because there might be some reason that you're not aware of. So always talk to somebody who has a lot of knowledge in that area. So let's dive into the actual preconception planning. What are some things that people can do to try to get their body ready before they try to get pregnant? Yeah, so definitely diet is a huge component here. And, you know, people will come to this from, you know, different 
Uh, but, you know, some patients are already very conscious of what they're eating, what's going in their mouth. Other patients might have a little bit of a different perceptive on what healthy eating is compared to what my perception might be. You know, sometimes I'll have patients that are like, yeah, I eat great. I get a Tim Hortons breakfast sandwich every morning and then I, you know, go to Subway at lunch and then I, you know, do this takeout for dinner. And I'm like, okay, like they are not the worst choices, but could we do better than that? Yes, I think we probably could. Right. So I think just starting with, you know, kind of cleaning up the diet. So taking out as many processed, you know, packaged type foods as we can. A big focus on fruits and vegetables, because the more, you know, fruits and vegetable content we get in, the more antioxidants we're going to get in. And antioxidants are going to be very protective and nourishing for our egg and sperm, right? They're also good for obviously all the rest of the cells in our body. You're going to get better digestive function with that as well. So I really encourage patients to to aim for kind of a minimum of five vegetables um, and three fruits a day. If they can do more than that, great. Um, but as kind of a starting point, I think that's pretty, and, and it, like that for some people that sounds like a lot, um, but if you break it down and you say, okay, you eat two at lunch and two at dinner, you throw one in at breakfast, there's your five. Like that's not that. And the serving is like one medium sized carrot is a serving. You eat two carrots, that's two servings of vegetables, right? So it's not, it doesn't have to feel like you're a rabbit and that's all you're eating <laughs> all day long, right? Um, with our kind of fats, definitely focusing on more poly and mono unsaturated fats. So those are going to be things like your fats from avocados, from olive oils, from your nuts and seeds. Um, you're trying to reduce the amount of saturated fats that we're getting into. Your saturated fats are the ones that are more solid at room temperature. So fats that you'll see in your meat products, um, in most of your dairy products. We know that saturated fat is they basically, I mean, there is a, a study that looked at kind of ratios of, you know, how much saturated fat to regular fats you're eating. We see worse pregnancy outcome, like less people getting pregnant, the more saturated fat they're eating. The higher amounts of mono and polyunsaturated fats, those are going to be helpful. Um, and, and we don't want to take fats completely out of our diet because we need fat to make our hormones, right? You need fat to make cholesterol. You need cholesterol to make your hormones. So sometimes patients think they're doing a good thing by pulling all the fats out of their diet. Maybe they're trying to lose some weight, for example, uh, and that actually ends up shooting them in the foot because then their hormone cascades don't work properly and, and that can dysregulate your menstrual cycle. And that obviously isn't going to help you get pregnant very easily. And then proteins obviously are a, a really important component of this as well. Um, looking at kind of the ratio of the amount of carbohydrates, the amount of proteins. Um, again, like there is a study looking at, you know, for women who ate just less than 50% of their calories from carbohydrates, more than 20% of their calories from protein, we saw increased pregnancy rates. So that's not that difficult to attain, I would say for most people. So, you know, when you're plating your meal, less than half of your plate just would be from a carbohydrate source. So that would be, you know, your sweet potato, your potato, your rice, pasta, any of those kind of foods. And then your lean proteins are going to be, you know, either from animal options, you'd be looking at chicken, turkey, um, definitely fish. Uh, I really encourage people to eat more fish in their diet. Typically here in Ontario, I don't find people eat fish that often for the most part. 
Um, so, you know, having a conversation about increasing that, that's going to help from that healthy fat standpoint and from that lean protein standpoint. And then, you know, foods like eggs, your beans, your legumes, your lentils, um, different nuts and seeds, like those are all going to be really good protein options for patients. Um, I tend to try to kind of avoid, again, a lot of the package type stuff. So for patients that, you know, perhaps have opted to be uh, vegan or vegetarian, um, that's a very popular diet choice right now. And because of that, we've seen this explosion of kind of fake products that, you know, look like meat and, you know, but when you look at the ingredient list, you know, it's a mile long. So if you're choosing to be a vegetarian and you want to have a burger, you know, eating a burger made out of beans and vegetables, that makes sense. Eating a burger that has 40 ingredients that you don't know what half of them are probably isn't going to be the best choice from a health perspective for you. And, and I mean, I would say the same thing around, you know, we get lots of conversations around, should I be eating gluten or should I be gluten free? Um, you know, again, that is more individualized based on the patient. I don't think there's any, you know, certain food that everybody should eliminate um, from their diet. But with gluten-free foods, same type of thing, right? A lot of times we'll see, okay, they take out wheat, but they replace it with sugar. Or it gets replaced with something that really isn't going to be increasing the amount of, you know, nutrients that you're getting in through your diet. So just because something is labeled as gluten-free, it doesn't necessarily mean it's good for you. And sometimes you'll see things labeled gluten-free that never had gluten in them to begin with. Like when you walk around the grocery store, it'll be like popcorn, gluten-free. And you're like, popcorn never had gluten in it, right? So (laughs) sometimes it's a bit of a marketing thing. So trying to be a little bit smart. I think my shampoo bottle has a gluten-free label on it, which I think is hilarious. Well, and I mean, sometimes that will come for our celiac patients, right? Because there are some patients that have been diagnosed with celiac that are so sensitive, like they can't have, and sometimes like gluten might be used as a binder or like a filler. So, but yes, it, Sometimes it's labeled in places you're like, well, I don't think too many products have gluten in it that are in this category. Right. Okay, perfect. So I think that, you know, all of that seems pretty reasonable. And the other thing that I would just add is that a a huge step into just healthy eating in general is just to learn to cook from scratch. You know, just pick up a couple of cooking skills, um, you know, learn how to cook a chicken breast, learn how to steam some vegetables, learn how to make grains from dry. I mean, that can go a long way just to to get those basic skills. Because I think that that's another thing that I commonly see in clinic is that people just don't know how to cook. They just don't know how to prepare you know, the basic staples in the kitchen, how to make a dressing, for example, you know, making a dressing is actually super easy. um, And it saves you so much of those additives by not buying, you know, the packaged processed shelf stable salad dressings. And it saves a lot of money too. Absolutely. Those are great points. So for sure, like, and, you know, sometimes there are patients that really don't enjoy cooking, they say they you know, hate grocery shopping, they don't want but now there are so many options available, you can, you know, like all these companies that have popped up like the HelloFresh, and you know, those kind of things where you can literally get it delivered to your house, and you don't have to do a whole lot um, to prepare a really good healthy meal. So if you know, if, if having to buy stuff and cook from scratch scares you that you can certainly look at some of those options as well. 
Okay, awesome. That's great advice. Thank you. So the other aspect that comes up quite frequently in my clinic is exercising for fertility. Do you have any tips or advice for people who are wanting to adjust their movement program to be more conducive to conception? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that basically being too sedentary or being too active, both kind of ends of that spectrum can negatively impact our fertility. So typically, we want to kind of stay in the middle. In the middle, basically looks like, you know, kind of five days a week getting, you know, somewhere between 30 to 60 minutes of exercise. And, you know, during that exercise, kind of staying in your target heart rate. So if you're going beyond an hour, I mean, and if you're going for a walk, like you're not in your target heart rate for the whole walk, right? So this doesn't mean you can't move outside of that, but in that more kind of intense exercise, once we go beyond about an hour, it can start to have some negative ramifications on our stress system. Uh, Basically, it can kind of suppress our immune system and we can start to see uh, it impact our menstrual cycles and our sperm health, depending on what the exercise is. So I kind of joke with patients like, you know, this is not the time to start Ironman training, um, but it absolutely, you know, depending on which end they're at, right? Because I have, you know, kind of a portion of my practice that are fairly high level athletes. So for them, I have to talk to them about let's bring it down a notch. And then for, you know, the other half of the patients, that's like, okay, now you got to step it up, right? So it's like meeting in this middle ground. And if you're not sure, you know, how exercise is kind of impacting you from an overall health standpoint, just using how you feel afterwards as a gauge is really helpful. So if you do 45 minutes of exercise, and then you need to go lie down and have a nap, because you're so exhausted, and you have to go to bed at seven o'clock, that's too much for you at this point. And you might need to talk to your practitioner about, you know, do you have some adrenal concerns? Like, is there something happening there? If you finish that exercise, and you feel, you know, energized, and you feel great for the rest of the day, then that's a really good exercise for you. Um, But I, I do find that striking a bit of a balance between what type of exercises someone's doing is also important. So, you know, if you're someone that loves, you know, high intensity stuff, like doing that five days a week is probably a little bit too much. So putting in a bit of a balance of a couple of yoga days or stretch days, or, you know, just some, you know, regular cardio in combination with weights on a different day, striking a bit of a balance that you're not going too much in any particular area, I think is important. So it's really about moderation. That's great. And then I always like to tell people, that come in and they want to talk about exercise with me. And and this is more in the spectrum of people who do nothing at all. Um, If you're just getting started, we're looking at basically increasing blood flow and regulating the nervous system. That's really the objective when it comes to exercise for fertility. And so in that case, walking counts as exercise. You don't have to put on gym clothes. You don't have to go to an organized class. You don't have to buy a $3,000 Peloton bike. You can just, you know, put on your running shoes and go for a 30 minute walk with your dog around the block. And that's going to hit all of your objectives right there. Just something to get your body moving is fine. It doesn't have to be organized. It doesn't have to be special. It doesn't have to be expensive. Just something to get the blood flowing. Absolutely. And it could be as simple as like putting on music at home and dancing around your living room, right? 100%. If you're someone that hates the gym, I mean, right now all the gyms are shut. So that's not even an option. But you know, if you're not a gym person, then I really encourage people to pick exercise that they like. 
right? Because it's going to be sustainable, right? If if you enjoy going to the gym and you've got kind of your crew that, you know, goes to classes together or you've got someone that you're doing your weights with and that encourages you to go and you enjoy it, great. But if that's not for you, find something that you do like. And maybe that's, you know, a Zumba class or it's a bar class or it's, you know, some type of, you know, other dance, or, but it's got to be something that you can see yourself doing for more than six weeks. Yeah, that's perfect. The best kind of exercise is the one that you're going to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the naturopathic perspective. And I know that naturopaths will sometimes run labs for people in preparation for them to get pregnant. Um, And there's also the option of going to your doctor and saying, hey, I'm thinking about getting pregnant in the next couple of months. Um, I'd like to do some blood work. Are there any labs or, or blood work aspects that you can suggest for people who are looking to get pregnant in the near future? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's important to look at, first of all, would be, do you have any nutrient depletions? So with certain nutrients, we know if they're at lower levels, it can impact, again, our ability to get pregnant or to stay pregnant. I think typically most people have heard of folic acid before, but outside of that, not there's not really a lot of conversation around different nutrients and heading into a pregnancy. So some of the ones that I will run just as kind of a baseline, and this actually will go for both partners, right? Because if we are low in folate, if we're low in B12, it will impact our sperm quality. Um, It'll also impact from an egg quality standpoint as well. So things that we'll look at are checking your B12 levels. Um, B12 is going to be particularly important if you're a vegan or a lot of times also we'll see it low in some of our vegetarian patients as well. But even in our meat eating patients, um, sometimes they don't absorb their B12. Well, and B12 only comes from animal protein. So if you're a vegan, you're not getting it in your diet if you're not supplementing. So I think it's important to get kind of a baseline with that one. Um, Folate, obviously, we know is very important for neural tube um, development in early pregnancy. So we want to make sure that that's in good range. For our female patients, iron is also a really important one. When we go into a pregnancy, our blood volume has to double. We need a lot of iron stores to be able to kind of maintain that. And low iron can actually be a reason why you don't ovulate. Um, So if you're not ovulating, obviously, it's very hard to get pregnant. Um, But it can also be a reason for early uh, pregnancy losses as well. So that's an important one to take a look at. Uh, And then vitamin D, I would say, also has huge relevance. Again, same kind of thing. We'll see if your vitamin D is low. Sometimes it can, can be harder to get pregnant or to stay pregnant. And then vitamin D will also play an important role in our patients that are struggling with any type of autoimmunity, um, inflammatory concerns. We know when vitamin D status is low, those kind of concerns can take hold more easily. So definitely that's an important uh, one to be looking at. And then for some patients, um, I will recommend doing something called an omega score. So this is a test that basically looks at your omega-3 status. Um, again, with kind of going into a pregnancy, we know omega-3s are critical for brain development. Um, so that's an important piece, but they also play a role in making sure that you have a healthy uterine lining. Um, they play a role with cervical mucus. Um, they play a role in sperm health. So again, this is relevant to kind of both parties. So 
one of the kind of important pieces of that preconception planning is, okay, let's make sure that we don't have any nutrient depletions. So, you know, running the labs to check um, is really helpful. And often I will recommend at that point, you know, starting, uh, you know, a prenatal or some type of, um, you know, a high quality multivitamin for both parties. Again, like not just, we don't just need that for females. We need that on the male side as well, because we know that, um, when we are de- depleted or deficient in any of these, it will impact the quality of those gametes. Okay, great. That's awesome advice. So all of those nutrient deficiencies, and then if it comes back, even at the correct levels, you still recommend starting a prenatal prior to even trying to conceive. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I do just to make sure we're optimizing those levels. And if, you know, something does come back depleted or on the low end, then obviously we'll address those specific um, nutrient depletions, depending on, you know, what it is, how low it is um, for that individual patient. Um, And then we also, like often we'll look at just running, you know, a complete blood count, checking, you know, liver and kidney function. Um, Again, just so we've got some good baseline data to see, you know, you're going into this pregnancy and everything was working well before you were heading in, right? Because sometimes things will come up during a pregnancy and you're like, well, was that problem there before? Is this just pregnancy related? Um, Blood sugar is another one like that because, you know, we do see higher rates of um, gestational diabetes um, in women. So that's basically where you get diabetes just during a pregnancy. But gestational diabetes in mom does leave baby more prone for type 2 diabetes in their lifetime. So it is something, you know, again, I like to get baseline levels to see, okay, where are we at before we go into the pregnancy? Do we have any concerns that we should address beforehand? Okay, perfect. That makes a lot of sense. So just to circle back a little bit to the prenatal, it's my belief as a natural practitioner and I'm not sure if you share this belief that not all prenatals look, are created equally. And so can you give maybe a couple of tips for somebody who's looking to find the best prenatal? Because I think that if you're going to invest the time and money in taking a vitamin, because most of them you have to take twice or three times a day for how many ever, the better part of a year, really, um, you want to know that the investment that you're making, the money that you're spending, because the best quality prenatal isn't that much more expensive than the worst quality prenatal. So I think it's really worth the time to figure out um, what's best for that. So any tips for people who are looking to find the ultimate prenatal? So when we're looking at our prenatals, we can see basically different forms of the nutrients. Some are going to be more easily utilized and absorbed by the body than others. With most of your minerals, you want to be looking for forms um, where mineral, like so your magnesium, your zinc, you know, those type of things are in either citrate, uh, like citrate form is usually pretty easily absorbed. Oxides tend not to absorb as easily. So, you know, looking at some of those differentiations, when we look at our B vitamins, we can see um, quite a range of kind of different sources of the Bs. One in particular, like with your B12, uh, methylcobalamin or hydroxycobalamin, both will absorb and be much more easily utilized than cyanocobalamin, where, you know, on a lot of the prenatals on the market, we'll see cyanocobalamin in there. 
uh, with our folate, um, I think you've talked about kind of the the differences with folic acid versus folate versus um, the 5-MTHFR, the methylated version. Here, the, you know, if you don't know your genetic status, I I will always recommend using a prenatal that has the active form in it or the 5-MTHFR instead of the synthetic folic acid, um, because for those women who do carry that genetic SNP that doesn't allow them to convert synthetic folic acid properly, it leaves them very prone for um, either, again, not being able to conceive or for early pregnancy loss. And I mean, the last thing I would ever want someone to experience is a pregnancy loss because they took the wrong kind of folate, right? So that's something that is pretty easy to address. And and unfortunately, it's not something that I still find is all that widespreadly talked about. So, you know, even when, you know, if someone has that first initial conversation with their doctor, often it's, yep, just take a folic acid and off you go. And there's no conversation around what type of folic acid, what's the dose that I should be looking at. Um, And so, I mean, I've even seen some, uh, you know, products on the market where they give you five milligrams of synthetic folic acid in the hopes that that would prevent or, you know, treat somebody that has this um, genetic polymorphism where basically they don't metabolize. And that actually is quite problematic because the more synthetic folic acid you get in, the more it blocks your methylation pathway. So it actually ends up doing the opposite and, and causes problems for a lot of women. Okay, so uh, so I'm what I'm hearing you say is that a good way to avoid this is just to take the more highly absorbable form if you don't know what your genetic uh, pattern is. Yeah, absolutely. And I do have a, a blog post that I can send over to you that just kind of has a chart with kind of less and more desirable forms of each of the nutrients that'll just make it a lot easier um, for women to kind of pick up their label, like pick up their bottle, look at their label and say, yep, okay, I've got all these in there. I'm good. Or I don't have any of these in there. I need to switch (laughs) to pick something a little more effective. Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. I was actually just about to ask you if you have a a printout or or something like that. So that's perfect. If you send that over, I will pop that in the show notes because I imagine that there might be people trying to voraciously take notes right now. And so no need to do that. We will post the blog post in the show notes for you to click on easily. And so one more thing that I wanted to ask you about was, should the male partners be taking a prenatal as well? Well, and this is where I, I do feel quite strongly that male partners should should be taking a prenatal, like during that preconception time, um, because we know, again, like any of these nutrients that can be deficient will impact their sperm quality. And, you know, when we're looking at getting pregnant, yeah, we only need one sperm, but we want that one sperm to be the best quality sperm that's going to meet that egg, right? Because that's going to set us up hopefully for good quality embryo and a healthy baby, right? So if, you know, I find male partners often overlooked, um, you know, first of all, we don't talk about preconception a lot to begin with. And when we do, it's very female focused, but all of these things also pertain to the male partner as well changing their eating, make sure they're exercising, stress reduction. And yes, you know, I think taking a nutrient that's going to help support healthy sperm production and their overall health, right? Our, you know, a sperm sample is a way that, you know, it's basically a window into a male's health, right? So if we're seeing concerns in their sperm samples, that's a, you know, that should be a big flag 
for that person to say, okay, what am I doing that's causing this? And what can I change? Right? Because yes, we can, you know, kind of move forward and say, okay, well, we're going to, you know, do an IUI to wash away the pore sperm or, you know, progress that up to an IVF or an ICSI procedure, but that's still not addressing the underlying health concern that that male patient is presenting with. And I think that's a conversation that also is very important to be having, right? Like when we start looking at different nutrient therapies and making these lifestyle changes, I don't think I've ever had a patient that we haven't seen an improvement in their sperm quality. So it's fairly easy to actually make those changes. And, and to be honest, like when I have a couple come in, if they're struggling with fertility and I find out it's male factor, I'm like, oh, this is easy because like we can, you know, this is something we can improve fairly quickly. We have parameters that we can repeat tests, right? Like, and it's a little bit more straightforward. Where with a with a female partner, there's so many more moving parts that you have to address, right? For sure. I always say that um, men are like a light switch and women are like a switchboard. There's just so many more moving parts to deal with in, in the people with eggs or yeah, the people with eggs and a uterus. Okay, awesome. So any last parting words for people who are just getting started on preconception? Is there one piece of advice that you might be able to offer people who are just approaching this? Well, I think just the fact that you're aware that you can make these changes and you can start addressing things before you try to get pregnant, right? I think just thinking about, okay, this three months before I get pregnant, I want to make them the healthiest three months I've had in my life and whatever that looks like for them, right? Like there are people that are at very different parts of this journey, but just trying to do your best to optimize your health is going to be really important. That's really great advice. Thank you so much. Dr. Jody. thank you so much for coming on. If people want to get in touch with you and continue the conversation, how can they find you online? Um, I am the Chief Medical Officer for Enhanced Fertility. So through, um, you know, any of those platforms, so at Enhanced Fertility on Facebook or on Instagram, uh, or you can email me at info at enhancedfertility.ca. Uh, or the other options. I'm also the founder of Canadian Fertility Show. So you can also connect with me through those channels as well. Okay, perfect. I will make sure that I pop all those links into the show notes in case people want to reach out to you and ask more questions. Thanks again for being on the show. We'll look forward to having you back again sometime. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great day. So that's my interview with Dr. Jody Peacock. I'm going to put all of the info that we discussed in today's episodes in the show notes so it's easier for you to find, as well as her contact information in case you want to get in touch with her to keep the conversation going. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, take care. Thank you for joining us on Fertility Academy. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you loved our content today, please be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with someone who you think might find it helpful. Don't forget to subscribe to be the first to be notified of new episodes. A new one comes out every Wednesday. To keep in touch with us and to continue the conversation, you can find us over on Instagram at Fertility Academy or join us on our private Facebook group, the Fertility Academy Community. Both are linked in the show notes today. Until next time, have a great week.